0: Now, if you'll turn to the book of John, we continue our study of the Gospel of John. And today we find ourselves at the beginning of the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. And we're going to look at the first six verses together today. And the message theme is, Why Doesn't Jesus Answer Prayer? And we get the answer found in this passage of Scripture and other Scriptures associated with it. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, He stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Has there been a time in your past when you appealed to Jesus to do something for you that nobody else could do? To help you in your time of difficulty? Perhaps it was in the time of an illness like Lazarus was faced with and his loved ones. Mary and Martha, his older sisters, were surrounding him and were concerned for their little brother. Maybe it was something to do with financial difficulty in your life or relational difficulty. Have you ever had that situation arise in your life and God didn't seem to answer your prayer? Jesus seemed to be deaf and indifferent to your prayer? Well... Some of you might even find yourself in that situation today. So, we're going to look at this passage and ask the Spirit of God to teach us why Jesus doesn't answer prayer. And here's the first response we're going to see to it. Is it because of a lack of devotion to Him on your part that has kept Him from answering your prayer? Well, I'm going to give a political answer here, it sounds like, but it's correct. And that is, not necessarily. Isn't that like a politician when he's asked a question? Not necessarily. And in so doing, covers all the bases. But it's important that we understand that there are some things we need to ask ourselves when we're not getting answers to our prayer. Here's the first question. I encourage you to write this question down. And then to think about it regularly whenever you face the lack of an answer to your prayer. Am I holding on to some sin in my life? This is the first question. And in the book of Psalm sixty-six, 18, let's read this. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In other words... If I'm coming to God with a need and I am still holding on to some known sin in my life, I haven't confessed it to the Lord and I haven't relinquished it to the Lord by repenting, then I cannot expect my prayer to be answered. In Proverbs 28:13, this is what the Bible says. The man who conceals his sin will not prosper. But he who confesses and renounces his sin will find mercy. There is a direct link between my confessing and repenting of any known sin in my life and my prayer being answered by the Lord. So this is a beginning point, a very important beginning point in our quest for understanding why Jesus doesn't answer our prayer. It could be because of some unconfessed, unrepented of sin. But what I'm apt to do every day when I open my Bible to read, I pray the prayer of David, found in the 139th Psalm, where David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I don't assume anything when I come to be alone with the Lord. I want to be sure that if there's some sin that has yet to be revealed to me or that I know that I'm holding on to, I want to know about it so that I can have communication with the Lord and have the probability of my prayers being answered during my prayer time. Here's a second question. Am I asking selfishly? That's a very important question for me or you to ask. Are we asking selfishly? And if we are, we're not going to get our prayers answered. Let's look at James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I'm not going to read the first part of James 4.2. I'm going to pick up at the second part, which says, You do not have because you do not ask. God wants us to ask. Did you know God wants us to ask Him for things? Just like we as human parents expect our children and welcome our children's asking us for what we need? God expects it. In fact, in Jeremiah 33, 3, God says, Call to me and I will answer, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. God invites us to call upon Him. It's not wrong. In fact, it's wrong not to call upon Him. But look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So we need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, am I being selfish in my asking this? Is this something that is out of keeping with your character, Lord? Something that you could not do because it would violate who you are? Some of you may remember, this goes back to my teenage years. Goodness, a half century ago, hard to imagine. Some of you may not even know anything about this, but some of you are from my era, and you'll remember it. Janis Joplin, anyone remember Janis Joplin? And the one song that I remember one line from, I don't even know the name of the song, but that line has stuck in my mind, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a (laughs) Mercedes-Benz? Well, there's nothing wrong with your having a Mercedes-Benz, necessarily. Nor was it wrong for her. But notice what she says. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Let's suppose you and I were both in need of transportation. And we knew about that fact about one another. If I know you need something and I need something, you know that, then we can pray for each other, can't we? And that eliminates, probably eliminates, selfishness in our praying. It's instructive when we look at what we call the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus comes to the point where He's telling us the kinds of petitions we are to offer, how He says, forgive us our trespasses. Give us our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. So Jesus wants us to pray selflessly. Yes, we can go to the Lord with our needs, whatever they are. And at the same time, we need to be mindful of others and be just as grateful when their prayer is answered as when ours might be answered. And if our prayer doesn't get answered as quickly as their prayer, their need gets met before my need gets met, I should rejoice. That's what the Bible says. Rejoice with those who rejoice in the body of Christ. So, the second question is a very pertinent question as well. Am I asking selfishly? Here's the third question. Am I asking according to God's will? This is incredibly important. In fact, if I don't ask according to God's will, I'm not going to get my prayer answered. Why do I say that? Because in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15... The Scripture says this is the confidence which we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. If I can get God's ear, it is done from God's perspective. I have to ask according to His will, and He promises He will do it. How do we know the will of God? The same way we know the will of another human being. If I want to know what you would like me to do, you have to communicate with me. I might have to ask you, what is your will? And call your name. And you will either speak it in order for me to know it, or write it out for me. And God has written out His will in His Word. And the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us and speaks to us when we read the Word of God in order that we may know the will of God and do it. If we know the will of God, then we can pray it. And we can know that God is going to answer the prayer. It may not be immediately, but we keep clinging tenaciously to this great promise. And I think it's the greatest promise, actually, in the Bible regarding answered prayer. Here's the fourth question. Am I asking in faith that God will answer me? Am I really believing, based on what the Word of God says, that He is going to answer me? This is so important. Look at the verse that this is based upon. These are the words of Jesus found in Mark, chapter 11, verse 24. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them. And they will be granted to you. Now, this belief must be founded in the promises of God and in the nature of God. Do you know there are over 7,000 promises contained in your Bible? And we don't need to go looking for promises. All we have to do is read the Bible. And we'll learn what the will of God is. And in the will of God are these promises I have just finished reading the book of Isaiah in my Bible reading time in the mornings. And what I've been amazed at once again, how often the Lord makes beautiful promises to us as His children. And I have been claiming the promises particularly as they relate to my children, my son and my daughter and my two grandchildren. I'm crying out to God that God will answer My prayer for my children based upon His Word. I believe the Lord will do it. We need to cling tenaciously to the promises of God. We have to believe that what He has said, what He has promised, He will do. Here's a fifth question that's important to ask in our pursuit of answering the question, why Jesus doesn't answer prayer. Am I refusing to forgive another person? Is there someone in your life that you're holding hostage, you're resentful toward? When you and I refuse to forgive another, look what Jesus says happens in Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Your prayer may not be answered or wasn't answered in the past because you have held resentment, bitterness towards somebody. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the Bible says, Pursue peace with all men. To see that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and brings defilement to everyone around you. The quickest way to short-circuit God's not answering our prayers is to hold a grudge against somebody else. We need to let go of that. You're self-defeating in your outlook if you have that viewpoint. There is not only the unlikelihood, the impossibility, actually, of God's answering your prayer if you hold on. To a grudge against someone. But it's going to defile you. It's going to ruin you. And it's going to ruin all those around you. Think about what that does to people in your sphere. If you're a parent, what that does to your children. If you're a spouse, what that does to your spouse. Think about it. And think of how incompatible that is to getting your prayers answered. Here's a sixth question. It is, am I abiding in Christ so His words can abide in me? In other words, the word abide means to dwell. Am I dwelling in Christ so His words can dwell in me? Am I living in Christ so that His words can live in me? This is what Jesus says about this in John fifteen seven. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now you see, and I know you've already seen this, as we've looked at these first six principles of having our prayers answered, that there is an interrelatedness of all of them, and they overlap. And this is a perfect example of this, but I wanted you to see this, because this is one of the greater promises in the Bible as it relates to my prayers being answered. If I dwell in Jesus and His words dwell in me, I have carte blanche with Him, do I not? He is going to answer my prayer. So the question would be, what does he mean when he says, my words abide in you? It goes back to what I mentioned earlier. As we're reading along in the Bible, and the word for the word of God in its totality that's used in the New Testament is the word logos, which refers to all the word of God. From Genesis 1.1 to the last word in the book of Revelation. All of that comprises the logos of God. It's the body of writings that constitute the word of God. There is another word, however, which is used in the New Testament. Translated word in our English or words in our English Bibles. It is the word rhema. The plural is "remata," And a rhema... Is a word from the Logos. It's a little w from the big w word that's directed to me by way of command, not just promise, but also command. And I must obey the Lord in addition to want to claim the promises of God. I must be committed to obeying the Lord to make course correction when the Holy Spirit shows me. Are you abiding in Christ? Are His words abiding in you? Are you depending on Jesus? That's really what abiding boils down to. Is He your everything? Could you say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here's a seventh question. Am I asking in Jesus' name? What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? It means at least to ask something that is characteristic of Jesus' way of thinking and behaving. He's not going to answer a prayer that would be out of character for his own life, his own thinking, his own practice. Here's what it means in its most basic meaning. It means that I cannot come to Jesus on my own merit in my praying. I come to Him not based upon what I have done for Him. And I say, Lord, think of all these things which I have done for You. How I have sought to obey You. How I have sought to be kind to other people. Lord, think about all the ways and times when I've come to worship You. That's not what gets us into the presence of God. And gets our prayer answered. Our prayer is answered when we recognize it's only through Jesus, who according to Hebrews 7.25, lives for the express purpose of interceding to the Father for us. Jesus is our go-between. Jesus is our ticket of admission into the presence of the Lord. Jesus is the one through whom we are to pray. Let's see the verse and the promise associated with it. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. So that your joy may be made full. John sixteen 24. Isn't it great when you do ask the Lord for something? And it is in keeping with His will. He answers, is your joy full then? It's joy unspeakable. And full of grace, isn't it? It's awesome to see God answer our prayers. We are so elated when He does. If that's to happen, we must ask in His name. Here's an eighth question. Am I asking persistently? It's always too early to quit when you're praying according to God's will. There are usually days, if not weeks and months, which elapse before... God responds in time to your prayer. Now, please understand, the moment you ask according to the will of God, God hears it and He dispatches an answer. But in time, it takes a while. In the book of Daniel, chapter 10, Daniel is praying. He's been fasting for three weeks. He's been praying and he's been fasting And all of a sudden, after all that laborious praying, he is awakened almost. He's not asleep, but he's so intensively praying. It's like he shut everything else out. And he is tapped on the shoulder and an angel says, I have come to deliver the answer to your prayer. And the moment it was heard in heaven three weeks ago, it was answered. But something happened on the way. And then the angel explains what's ha- what happened. On the way, he says, the prince of Persia intercepted me and stalled your re- receiving the answer. And the prince of Persia is sort of a cryptic way of speaking of Satan. So, God dispatches the answer. The devil tries to keep us from receiving it because he knows that it could sabotage our belief and our faith. But it's always too early to quit in your praying. If you're praying according to God's will, it's always too early to quit. Some people just quit. You give up. Some of you are there today. I'm not your critic. The Lord's not your critic. But I am your encourager today. Don't give up. Let's see what Jesus says about this in Matthew 7.7. 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. A man by the name of Charles Williams did a translation of the New Testament. It is an excellent translation, especially having to do with the form of the verbs which are translated into English. This is the way he translates this verse. Listen carefully. And it's very precise to the language of the New Testament. He says this as he translates it. Keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. We have to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 about a little persistent widow who comes to an unjust judge. You know the story. And she begins to pester the judge. And he just brushes her off. But she couldn't persist. She persists. And finally, to get her out of his hair, he says, Okay, lady, you can have what you ask for. Now, our God is not an unjust God. He's anything but unjust. But it's a parable teaching the importance of persistence. The reason we know that, when Jesus gives his summary statement of that particular parable. He says this about Himself. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when He comes? What does that have to do with this parable? Everything. Because the way that Jesus will identify people of faith when He comes again is that they will be persisting in praying. Are you a persistent prayer? Have you given up praying for certain things? certain situations in your life because you haven't seen with your physical eyes the answer to your prayer? Well, look. Don't give up. Don't look with these eyes. Look with the eyes of your heart because your eyes of your heart are capable of seeing the truth and believing that Christ will answer your prayer because you're asking it in His name according to His will and He is going to answer Those prayers do not give up. Here's a ninth question. Am I dishonoring my spouse? If you are dishonoring your spouse in the way you speak to him or the way you treat her, if you are doing these things, you cannot expect the Lord to answer your prayer. And this is a bummer, isn't it? Every once in a while, we just want to be mad at our husband's And our wives. It's true, isn't it? It takes a lifetime. Some of you have been married over 50 years and you still are working it out. Am I right about I don't want a testimony, but I know it's true. I know it's true. You're still working certain things out in your marriage. Thank God you haven't quit. You've continued to persist. And I like what Ray Stedman says about marriage. He says, marriage is God's sandpaper... In our lives to rub, rub off the rough edges. It's true, isn't it? Well, let's look what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. The word translate live with is make a home for. We typically think of women as being the homemakers, but men in the marriage relationship, they are the ones who make the marriage by living with their wives In an understanding way. As with someone weaker since she's a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, I understand that women are not weaker than men in many areas. But in many ways, women are more vulnerable to us as Christian husbands. And our responsibility is not simply to provide for our wives. But we are to protect our wives. And one of the ways we protect our wives and protect our marriage men is to live with them in an understanding way. Keep working to understand your wife. Observe her. Ask her questions. And listen when she gives the answer back. Don't immediately give a rebuttal to what she has to say. She'll be surprised if you don't try to come back at her with... Response when you, by the way, ask the question to begin with. Mean it when you ask it. Take it in. Try to learn from the Lord through your wife in that way. And of course, wives, you need to honor your husband, respect him. There's much that has been said, and rightly so, about the husband's responsibility in a Christian marriage. What are we to be, men? We're to be like Christ. What an awesome challenge. That just sort of withers me every time I think about it. I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. It's not my nature to give myself for her or anybody else. I think she should give herself for me. Isn't that right, men? Don't we think like that sometimes? That's unconditional, however. There's no if she respects you. You're to love her. But ladies, listen carefully. The Bible says you're to submit to your husbands and respect them. There is no caveat there either. It's unconditional respect for your husband. You honor your husband by respecting him. Even when he doesn't deserve it. I'm not sure any of us deserve it sometimes. But go ahead. You'll see transformation in your spouse if you do what God tells you to do. And honor her or him. Here's the tenth question. This is probably the problem for a lot of people whose prayers go unanswered, including Janice Joplin. I don't know if she's still alive. Probably not. Am I a true follower of Jesus? Do you really know Christ? How do you become a true follower of Christ? Well, the Bible says in John 1, 12, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe into His name. That's what real faith is. Real faith is not just having intellectual agreement with the things the Bible says about Christ. It has to do with total reception of Christ. It's a selling out, believing into Him, moving toward Him, and finding your place of meaning and purpose in Christ. And you look to Him as your Lord, not just your Savior. That's what it means to know the Lord. Now look... At this last verse that we're looking at, these are ten questions, and I've taken 20 minutes or so to talk about them. You can understand these. They're simple to understand, and it would be wise periodically to go through these questions. Here's what Isaiah 59.2 says as it relates to answering the question, Am I a true follower of Christ? But your iniquities have made a separation... Between you and your God, your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Does that ring a bell? What did we see from 1 John 5 14? This is the confidence which we have before God that if we ask anything according to His will, He does what? He hears us. And if He hears us, we know that we have what we've asked from Him. So the big deal is getting the ear of the Lord. If I don't know Jesus Christ, there's this big chasm that sin has created between me and Him. I have not fully trusted in Him. I have not understood that belief is not simply intellectual. Belief is not just based on some crisis in which I find myself when I need the Lord's help. It's based upon my selling out to Christ, giving Him control of my life. And when that happens, the chasm is immediately gone. And I am in Christ. And He is in me. So, is it because of a lack of devotion on your part that Jesus doesn't answer your prayer? Possibly. We've looked at reasons. Here's a good prayer to pray to the Lord, if you know the Lord. I don't know to whom I should credit this. It didn't come from me. It was some great unnamed saint in the past. This is what the person prayed. I say, Lord, Your property is in danger. I belong to Jesus. And You do too. If we have trusted Him, we are His. We have been bought with a price. He paid the ultimate price of His precious blood to secure us as His sheep, and to secure us a place in the family of God. So we can say to the Lord, and we can, if you want to yell at the Lord, you can. Not in anger, but just say, hey Lord, I'm crying out to you. The Bible advocates and gives us illustration after illustration of how people cried out to God in their distress. Cry out to the Lord. Get alone. Cry out to the Lord. And say, Lord, I'm Yours. I'm your child. Lord, I'm your sheep. Please minister to me. Is it because of a lack of devotion on your part? Possibly. But not always. Because in the case of this family in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we encountered her, that is Mary, in the tenth chapter of Luke. And Jesus and His men showed up unexpectedly, at their home, and Martha's working in the kitchen, preparing a meal, and where do we see Mary, who evidently is the younger of the two sisters? Where is Mary? She's listening to Jesus, and she's seated at His feet. If we had access to a pictorial theological dictionary, and we looked up the word devotion, I would suspect that there would be a picture of Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. It's the picture of devotion. And let's look at 11.32, where we see Jesus has come to be with the family. And look what is said about Mary's response when she finds out Jesus is nearby it says in verse 32, Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw Him, and what did she do? She fell at His feet. Now she's not sitting at His feet. She's prostrating herself before Him. Weeping. And saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. She's not being ugly toward Jesus. She's just expressing her heart. Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, let's look at chapter 12 for a moment. In verses 1 through 3. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving... But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him, that is with Jesus. Mary, now notice this, therefore took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This very expensive ointment perfume We're told in verse 5 of this section, it was costly. It cost 300 denarii. A denarius was the common wage for a day laborer in Israel in this era. Three That's a year's worth of work. That's a lot of money, isn't it? She's being extravagant in the way in which she shows her devotion to the Lord. And notice she anoints His feet. Now, in order for her to anoint his feet, she doesn't do it from the standing position. She has to get down and anoint the feet of the Lord. She's humbling herself. She's devoted. So, it's not due to a lack of devotion on your part that Jesus doesn't answer your prayer. Well, here's another question. let put this question up. Thank you. Is it because of a lack of interest... On his part, in you. And I say, no, with an exclamation point, absolutely not. Why do I say that? Because Christ loved all three members of this household. Why do we know that? Well, let's go back to chapter 11. And notice what verse 5 tells us. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And if we were to go to Mr. Williams' translation, remember, he does the verbs so precisely. Do you know what we would read? It says, now, Jesus was continually loving these three people. Martha, her sister Mary, and Lazarus. He loved them. And this is not the word that you and I probably would expect Him to use, as the gospel writer, I would think he would use the word agapao, from which the noun agape means, which is the uniquely New Testament concept of love. It's God's love, the sacrifice of self and undeserving others. Rather, he uses the word phileo, the word from which the city of brotherly love comes, Philadelphia. You hear it there. And that kind of love is a beautiful love, too. It's a love that can't be contained. It's a spontaneous kind of love. Jesus had this kind of love for this family. He loved them with the agapao kind of love, of course. Just like He loved everybody else when He gave His life. But He really loved them. He loved being with them. He saw them as His friends because the word phileo has to do with friendship love. Jesus loved them. He was very interested in them. He was wanting them to have the best that He could give to them. Sometimes we might ask the question of the Lord when He's delaying an answer in our prayers. If we are your sheep, where is the practical expression of your love to us in this time of trouble? Remember, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this that He laid down His life for His friends. Would you hazard a guess? What the word friends in the original language comes from? Which word it comes from? It's the word "philia," which comes from phileo, the verb to love as a friend. Jesus loves us. If we are his sheep, we have trusted him. We are loved by him. He has an emotional response. To us, Not just a volitional, willful response to our need. He has a gut-level response to us. He cares about us. Then we ask, where is He? Doesn't Jesus know my life's falling apart? There's somebody here today who came with that thought in your heart. Does Jesus really care? Well, certainly He does. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, That the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus cared about Mary and Martha and certainly cared about Lazarus. Perhaps you recall the story which is recorded by more than one of the gospel writers of Jesus and his disciples. They're in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is fatigued. He's wiped out. So tired that the storm, which is the most ferocious storm these men had ever encountered, remember, most of them made their living on that sea. They knew it like the back of their hand. They thought they'd seen everything, but this took the cake. Now, remember what Jesus was doing? He was stretched out in the bottom of the boat. And they were doing everything which they knew to do to salvage the situation. And finally, they came and they shook Jesus awoke. Away. Do you remember what they said to him? Don't you care that we are perishing? Have you ever said that to the Lord? If you're honest, you probably have. Don't you care? Jesus cared. Of course. He was with them. It didn't seem that he was really with them. I mean, he was with them physically, but it didn't seem to them that he was really caring about them. And then he got up before he said anything in response, what did he do? He told the storm, Peace, be still. And the word that he uses there for be still means muzzle, is really what it is, like putting a muzzle on a dog. Muzzle. And as soon as he said that, the wind and the waves obeyed him and it stopped. And then he turns around to them and he says, Oh, you of little faith. They were lacking faith. They did not believe that Jesus cared for them. Now, understand, Jesus cares for you. If you're His sheep, He'll leave the 99 and go looking for you if He can't find you. Jesus cares beyond whatever we can imagine. Before we go on to the next emphasis in the message, being Christ's friend doesn't exempt you from trouble. I hope you know that. Jesus says in John 15, 16, if 18, actually, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, let me read the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Was Paul a friend of Jesus after Jesus made him one of his sheep? Absolutely. Look at what he said. The result of his being obedient to Christ resulted in five times I received from the Jews... 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned three times, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, from robbers, from countrymen, from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, in the wilderness, on the sea, dangers Among false brothers, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. This is a friend of Jesus. We don't get the sense that Paul was not believing Christ during those times. But we do know, if we were to go later in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, there was a time when Paul was begging the Lord to take away a thorn in the flesh, as he describes it. Verse 7 of chapter 12 says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I begged the Lord three times that it might depart from me. That is, the thorn in the flesh. And he said to me, it's probably some physical ailment, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So, Paul had trouble. He was a favored son of Jesus and God the Father. Let's go to look at the positive answer. We've asked a couple of questions. Is it because of our lack of devotion? Not necessarily. Is it because of the lack of interest that Jesus has in us? Absolutely not. Well, here is the answer. It's found in this passage in John 11. It is to ensure God's glory. The glory of Jesus is at stake. Properly addressed. Your pain may be used by God for others good. I know myself well enough, and by virtue of that I know you because we're all human beings, and we tend to look out for ourselves first. And when we're in pain, it's doubly difficult to think about other people, isn't it? But one of the things that we can gather from what the Bible teaches that helps us to weather the storms of life, the trouble, is understanding what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of mercies, and here's a kicker, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, now listen carefully, in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to, "...to comfort others in any affliction which they're undergoing." So, one of the things I know, and one of the things that's helped me when I'm encountering difficulty, not to be angry at God, not to give up, is to recognize, Lord, You can use this to mold me into a man who has understood through trouble and pain and suffering... You are able to use me better in other people's lives to help them. And isn't this what the Christian life results in? It's not about me. It's about others. Now, let's think a moment about Martha. When Jesus came to the home that Martha was the head of, evidently, in Bethany, and she was fixing a meal for him and his Associates, Mary's at his feet listening. Martha comes out. Do you remember what Martha said? Listen, three words we've already heard from some other followers of Jesus. Don't you care? Don't you care, Lord? She got all over Jesus. She had the audacity to get in the face of Christ. Just like we do sometimes. Don't you care? And then what does Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha, you are bothered with your many preparations. With your ministry to me, really, is what he was saying. You're bothered. But your sister has chosen the better way. Properly addressed, my pain may be used by God for others' good. Look at verse 19 in this passage of Scripture. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This family was well thought of in their village. Many had come. And they were mourning too. They loved him, not like his sisters loved them, but they loved him. But they saw a miracle. They saw this man, Lazarus, die. We're going to see that next week. They saw him die. And they were mourning And then here comes Jesus, and Jesus uses the pain of Martha and Mary. And we need to understand that. It's for the good of others. Those people's faith was built up. Too bad we don't have any insight into their lives after that event, but I would bet my bottom dollar that... They were changed, many of them, because of what they witnessed that day when Lazarus was raised from the dead. It was for the glory of God, Jesus said. It's for my glory. The Son of Man will be, Son of God rather, will be glorified, he says, in this text of Scripture which we looked at. Well, it's for us too, isn't it? This story is for us. There's relevance in this for us, isn't there? There's insight in this for us. There's encouragement in this teaching that helps us to deal with those long periods of time after we've asked according to God's will, we believed He's going to answer, and we're still waiting on the answer in time. And our patient endurance, as we exult in our tribulations, as Paul said, it produces endurance. And endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. That's what the Apostle says. He knew what he was talking about. Here's a question when there's a delay for us to ask ourselves. Is this delay, this pain, for others, Lord? Let's look at the last emphasis here that I'm going to make. Properly addressed, your pain may be used by God to change you. Martha here Again, is Exhibit A. Where was her focus when the Lord came to her house in the story recorded in Luke 10? It was on the Lord, it seemed, but really her real focus was on herself. She was probably trying to make points with Jesus. I'm not trying to say she didn't have good motives mixed with some of the bad motives, I think probably there was, she was serving the Lord. But she was really uptight about it. You know, when we're serving the Lord, we're not thinking about other people. If you're thinking about other people, you're thinking, I want credit for this. You're not thinking about, it. we're to think about the Lord. She was, came to the Lord and she was in effect saying, I'm neglected. Pay attention to me, Jesus. Don't you care about me? Well, certainly Jesus cared about her. We know He did because in the way in which He addresses her. He says, Martha, Martha, whenever God the Father or Jesus the Son speaks to someone and uses the name twice, it's a term of endearment. It's a way of His saying, and without saying, I love you, I love you. He was not scolding her. He was speaking to her. She did not have her eyes on Jesus. This is what... Trouble is designed for. Put your eyes on Jesus. The Bible says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. By the way, where He lives to make intercession for us. In chapter 12, let's look. In chapter 12, John, we see Martha... And there is a decidedly different mood as she does what she does in verse 2 of chapter 12. They made him a supper there. Martha was serving continually. She didn't come and badger Jesus about the lack of other people serving. She saw the great privilege which she had in serving. It is our nature, just like during the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, And Peter's in the boat. Some of his buddies are fishing with him. And they see a figure on the shore. The figure is preparing some food, it looks like. He's got a fire going. And so Peter says, it's the Lord. Remember that? And he jumps in, swims swiftly to the shore. Can't wait for the boat to be rowed ashore. And he has this encounter with Jesus. Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Is that... Correlate with the denial of Jesus by Peter. Three times he denied it. Three times he said, Do you love me? And Jesus said, You know I love you, Lord. You know I love you, Lord. You know I love you, Lord. And then all of a sudden, after the Lord says, Feed my sheep or tend my lambs, or, He says it three different ways, then all of a sudden, he, after Jesus says, When you're old, somebody's going to carry you to the place of death. You're going to be too feeble to get there on your own. And then he says, what about him? Isn't that like us? What about him? And he points to John, his friend, John, his previous partner in business, in the fishing business. And he points to him. Isn't that the way we are? We don't need to point to other people. What we need to do is direct our eyes to the Lord and believe that He has something in mind for us. We don't sense anything in Martha as she's Projected in this passage of Scripture in chapter 12. uh, Worrying about what other people aren't doing. But satisfied with the honor of honoring the Lord. We need to see our predicaments as opportunities for Jesus to be honored through our lives. Jesus waited two days. How rude, Jesus! Jesus! that you would wait two days to go to help your sick friend Lazarus. If you really cared about him, you would have gone immediately. Jesus had a plan, didn't He? Here's a prayer. Lord, I know Your delay isn't designed to dishonor me, but to set the stage for Your being honored through me. That's God's will for our lives. And... We can gain great insight and encouragement if we remember these things which Jesus has taught us today through His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the teaching of Your Word by Your Spirit. We're asking now, Lord, that we would examine our own hearts to see if we are in You and to trust You, Lord with especially the difficult moments of our lives. Help us to get our minds off of ourselves and on You. Help us always to use You as our North Star, the one around which our lives revolve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hope you have a great week.